0: welcome to the Platinum Asset Management Quarterly Report for June 2018. A full copy of the report is available on our website, platinum.com.au, where you will also find a disclaimer under terms and conditions. In this podcast, we will cover the macro overview by Andrew Clifford, our CEO and CIO, and then go on to highlight some of the comments made by other fund managers within the team. So I'll start with the macro overview by Andrew Clifford. And in our previous March quarterly, we summarised the issues that had recently led investors to become more cautious, such as the rising interest rates in the US, the impacts of China's financial system reform, and the potential for a trade war between the US and China. And these issues continue today to be at the forefront of investors' mind and are driving a growing risk aversion globally. So it's worth returning to these issues. And starting off with an analysis of the impact of a trade war, it's far from straightforward. Various economists' modelling suggests China could lose about half a percent in economic growth in the more extreme outcomes. And while this sounds dramatic, the economy grows around 6 to 7 percent, so the potential impact is in fact limited. But in assessing the prospects for a given company, the macroeconomic effect is largely irrelevant. Tariffs that are being applied to imports by the US and by their trading partners in response will most certainly impact product prices, demand, and ultimately profits. And these will be felt not only by the companies facing tariffs but potentially also by their customers a chinese manufacturer might be hurt but so will be a us retailer who potentially has to increase their prices on the products it's selling the u.s company now paying more for aluminium and steel will face a cost disadvantage against competitors elsewhere in the world u.s soybean farmers whose production attacks a tariff when sold to china will likely respond by selling their produce elsewhere and potentially suppress prices for soybean growers in other countries. So there will be many unintended consequences from a trade war. From a U.S. perspective, an example is Harley-Davidson, who have already announced they might move some production to Europe. So exactly where the costs of these measures fall will become more apparent in the months ahead. We know consumers will pay higher prices for products. Some companies will see an impact on profitability and competitiveness, and jobs will be lost. Secondary effects, such as the loss of business and lower consumer confidence, Impacting spending may also become apparent, both in the US and elsewhere. It's not clear how severe and widespread these impacts will be, but it's an interesting test of the US administrators' resolve to maintain their trade policies once these costs are known. Changes to any system, whether better or worse, are usually very difficult to implement because entrenched interests are very effective at opposing them. Last quarter, we noted the reforms in the Chinese financial system, which simply have seen the regulator requiring the banks to bring assets and liabilities of the shadow banking system back onto their balance sheets. And one of the goals in doing so is to ensure compliance with the lending restrictions that have been put in place. While these reforms are undoubtedly a long-term positive for the Chinese financial system, in the near term they've created a tightness in credit availability, which many think will impact on the growth of the economy. It's certainly impacted the Chinese stock market and the A-share market was down 22% from its peaks reached in January. But what we're seeing through indicators such as construction equipment, auto and property sales suggest that robust levels of activities were still taking place through to the end of May. Perhaps there will be an impact on the broader economy later, but policymakers in China certainly have the ability to respond if and when this happens. The PBOC cut reserve requirements for banks in June, freeing up their ability to lend, and further cuts can certainly be made if necessary. The US Federal Reserve again raised interest rates this quarter, and we've noted numerous times in our reports that rising interest rates will eventually bring about a slowing in the economy and a fall in stock prices. It's difficult, though, to assess exactly at what point interest rates will have risen far enough for their impact to be felt. An indicator often used is the steepness of the yield curve, which refers to the difference between short- and long-term interest rates. As short-term rates rise up towards the level of longer-term rates, this is referred to as a flattening of the yield curve and usually indicates that the economy will soon start to slow. In the last quarter, the yield difference between 10 and two-year government bonds narrowed to levels last experienced between 2005 and 7. This certainly supports a view that we're starting to enter the final stages of the current US expansion. But for the moment, economic indicators in the US point to ongoing robust growth, undoubtedly buoyed by this year's tax cuts. We should also expect President Trump will at some point announce infrastructure initiatives and add further fuel to the economy, reinforcing upward pressure on interest rates. Now, these fears around trade war, tightening credit in China, and rising rates have resulted in increased risk aversion, and we've seen significant divergence in stock price performance over the last six months, from that Chinese A-share market down 22%, Japan down about 10%, and Korea 11% and most emerging markets performing poorly during this period. The US market was flat over the six months to date, but the, um, within the market, there's been a dramatic variance across sectors, a narrow group of growth stocks in technology and biotech sectors have done very well, while financial industrial stocks have generally performed poorly. A narrowing of markets, again, often suggests that higher interest rates may be starting to impact the markets. The Chinese A-share market's been particularly hard hit with local investors being concerned about a tightness in credit availability. This topic has, however, been part of daily news bulletins and commentary in China for the last six months, and the fear has now been well and truly expressed, but it only seems to be recently reported in the foreign financial press. Given China China's the prime target of President Trump's trade war, it's become clear that as there won't be a negotiated, trade, a negotiated outcome, trade tension has continued to weigh heavily on this market. But today, the A-share market's back to the lows reached in January 2016, a point in time at which the country had just been through a period of capital flight, excess capacity in heavy industry, many loss-making companies, and the possibility of a banking crisis being triggered by non-performing loans. So today, while there may be some slowdown through these changes in the financial system, the supply-side reforms have resolved the issue of excess capacity, heavy industry's profitability is much improved, And the likelihood of a fully blown banking crisis is much lower. So risks have been reduced substantially, profits are higher and stock prices in aggregate are about the same level as they were two years ago. So at an individual stock level we find value in a very wide range of companies. It's very hard to know when these various fears will subside and allow the market to move higher and one would expect however that the credit tightness will recede in time the PBOC may take measures such as further cutting of reserve requirements to also ease the problem. As we move forward, the impact of tariffs at a company level should become more obvious, although it's hard to predict the US administration's future moves. But we do think the negative sentiment and attractive valuations are indicative of strong future returns from this market in coming years. In other markets like Japan, the divergence between highly valued and least valued stocks is at a record level, and elsewhere outside the much-loved high growth technology and biotech stocks, we're finding companies at interesting valuations. All of this bodes well for future returns, although it's possible that in the meantime we may first see a correction in the prices of high-flying stocks if this is precipitated by rising US rates. To look more closely at US, uh, sorry, the European and Japan, I'm just going to briefly provide comments from the regional portfolio managers. On Europe, Nick Dvornak notes that the European economy appears in rude health. While economic growth slowed in early 2018 after a strong 2017, there's no obvious cause for concern. Leading economic indicators have stabilised at robust levels, employment continues to grow with 2 million jobs added over the last year, and wages, retail sales, and credit are all growing comfortably while inflation remains contained. Fiscal policy is tightening, but monetary policy remains extremely accommodative. QE will end this year. But interest rates are unlikely to rise before the middle of next but this ever wider gap between interest rates in europe and the us is putting pressure on the euro as is renewed concern about political instability and this is troubling investors many of these ructions originated from the us including a new round of sanctions targeting russia withdrawal from the iran nuclear deal and escalation of trade tensions others are homegrown such as broad divisions of how to deal with migrants and antagonism between italy And the european union so political instability and rising interest rates cloud the outlook but broadly speaking valuations tend to be high and equity markets might struggle to appreciate in this environment but it's hard to be too bearish with favorable economic prospects but what we would remind our listeners is that we invest in individual businesses not markets as a whole and the simple fact is we continue to uncover what we think are good investment ideas the quarter that's just ended was particularly fruitful in this regard Giving us cause for optimism, and on Japan, where the divergence we mentioned is between highly valued and low valued companies at very wide levels, Scott Gilchrist defines the three main aspects of the Japanese stock market at the moment as a 30 year bear market following the bursting of the bubble in one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine the low absolute valuation of the market when accounting for cross share holdings and cash and investment balances. And thirdly, the valuation dispersion is now approaching historic peaks. The trading range of the last 25 years has led to this market to be conditioned to sell at the top of a range and buy towards the bottom. And it's going to be hard to see that change. But it's interesting to note that Japanese households only have 11% of their 16 trillion US dollars of financial invest- assets invested in the stock market, while the US counterparts have more than three times this at 36%. The aggregate market cap of all listed companies in Japan is roughly 6 trillion US dollars, with 15% or more in cross shareholdings, 4% of Bank of Japan ownership, and 2 trillion US dollars of surplus corporate cash. Simply put, a small shift in asset allocation could have a large impact on the stock market. In the International Fund's report, we do note that our research reveals the areas of greatest value today lie in Japan. Korea and Taiwan. But as they are open trading economies, they've suffered in recent months. The amazing things to note are that all of these three markets Japan, Korea, and Taiwan have lower net debt equity ratios than the world average, higher returns on capital employed, lower trailing PEs, higher weighted EPS growth over the last five and ten years, and all of them run current account surpluses to GDP. So, North Asia, we think, contains a lot of opportunity. And moving to Asia and the commentary of Joe our, Lai, our Platinum Asia fund manager, we really want to highlight some of the changes taking place in India and China. Many of the opportunities that we find at Platinum are really revolve around identifying the beneficiaries of change. And these two countries, the largest on the world by population, are certainly exciting markets and ones where we're always seeing change. Over the last quarter, several members of our team visited these two countries and we came away from both countries with positive but different observations and I'll now share these from Joe's report. In India, we are pleasantly treated to super-fast mobile internet service. The upload and download speed is similar, if not superior, to what we're used to in Australia. Reliance Geo entered the mobile network business only several years ago and has ramped up a gold-plated 4G network from scratch, which at the time was dismissed as a daft idea. We disagreed with the assessment because we believed the country, which had been underserved by poor fixed-line services and slow mobile networks, would see significant demand unleash once an efficient and affordable internet offer was provided. We first invested in the parent company Reliance Industries in 2015 before the mobile network launched. 18 months after launch, Reliance Geo has accumulated 180 million subscribers. Enticing users with offers of virtually unlimited data for two U.S. dollars a month—a boon to consumers who are used to getting ready access to the full gamut of online activities and services 24 hours a day. As the mobile internet becomes increasingly affordable, Indians are buying about 120 million smartphones a year. This aggressive competitor with a deep pocket is forcing some smaller operators out of the market, and we've reduced from probably half a dozen to effectively just three players. We think the level of competition will eventually ease, restoring profitability for the remaining big operators like Bharti Airtel, in which we have a position. Another encouraging sign in India is that for the first time in several years, construction-related sectors are running high on rising util- utilisation rates. Some steel makers are operating above 85%, and cement producers are starting to ramp up too. Commercial truck and passenger car sales are also running hot. All of this while credit growth is only beginning to recover from some of the lowest levels since the times of Indira Gandhi. As utilization rates continue to increase, corporates are starting to add capacity. So India appears to be on the cusp of a long-awaited revival of private sector capex cycle. Business confidence is high. So far, demand has been driven by government-led infrastructure programs. India needs improvements to reduce the cost of transporting goods around the country. The authorities have approved 13,000 kilometers of road construction for two consecutive years, a doubling of length compared to just a few years ago. Airports, railways, social housing projects also continue pace. Reform measures are starting to have a meaningful impact, A national goods and services tax has reduced the complexity of state-based taxes. The new bankruptcy law is getting tested and is evidently working. Assets are now being transferred from insolvent founders to new owners through bankruptcy proceedings. And the significance is it prevents founders from companies getting out of their debt repayment obligations by dragging out court processes and wearing out creditors, which had traditionally been the norm. The new law forces defaulting founders to fix the problem or face the loss of their assets to the banks or to new owners, and this is having a profound impact on founders' behaviour. This represents an important structural change to Indian banks, including several of the fund's holdings. We cannot overstate the significance of its benefits. We hold in the Indian banking sectors what we believe are best-in-class operators, and we expect them to reap additional rewards if the Indian capex cycle finally launches into full swing. In China, our recent visit to Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong was literally a breath of fresh air. China's infamous air pollution has truly improved. And while air quality can and does fluctuate daily, it was impressive to see five consecutive days of blue sky, a first in many years, since our Asia team started visiting China. China's relentless ascendance along the technology ladder has primarily been driven by an energetic private sector. Meeting various industry heads shone a light on how ambitious the Chinese electric car makers are. In the near future, we'll see many local competitors to Tesla retailing cars at affordable prices of 30 to 60,000 US dollars, designed from the ground up for electrification. With the battery pack at the bottom of the chassis, The centre of gravity is very low, allowing electric motors to bring the vehicle into accelerating acceleration from a standing start. Observations on the trip also reinforced our view there's enormous demand for life insurance products. Despite the authorities' ongoing efforts to improve the quality of healthcare, access to publicly funded medical care remains limited for patients suffering from serious illnesses such as cancer and coronary heart disease. As healthcare costs rise and life expectancy increases, the issue is becoming more acute. Insurance policies for critical illnesses are becoming extremely attractive. These policies cover the range of major illnesses and will pay out lump sums in the event of insured contracting one. The penetration rates remain very low in China compared to the developed world. Products are immature and highly profitable, so we can see industry growth for many years to come. Two of the holdings in the fund, Ping An and AIA, are leaders in this market, and they have what we believe are the most experienced sales force, the most advanced IT systems in the industry, and this will play a crucial role in getting their products into the hands of eager consumers. Indeed, the Chinese economy continues to recover and expand, despite the difficult job of cleaning up the shadow banking sector. The authorities are not afraid of pulling the levers they have to ensure a decent level of economic activity is maintained and China is not blindly following the US Fed's move to raise interest rates. Its government continues to push ahead with infrastructure programs from interstate high-speed rail networks to metropolitan underground metro systems, water treatment plants, and new healthcare facilities. And in the property market, despite the authorities' draconian measures to curb demand and limit purchases, the market is holding up. We continue to witness a shortfall in the supply of residential property and new construction starts Are supporting economic activity. So we're encouraged by the number of attractive long-term opportunities we're finding in the region and many of these businesses are not expected to be directly impacted by the trade friction. Two other areas of uh, the world where we constantly see change and where we generally find opportunities are healthcare and technology. And I just want to bring to to, uh, the highlights from the reports from our healthcare and technology funds Starting with Bianca Ogden's healthcare fund report, and Bianca comments the ongoing issue that we see in this um, sector, or that we don't think is receiving enough attention, is the unprecedented level of innovation in the healthcare industry. A prominent biotech venture capitalist recently said that a pharma CEO and board who think buying another pharma company is the right way forward should be marched out the door immediately as they are missing the unprecedented innovation and changes occurring elsewhere. Innovation is plentiful in healthcare today. For example, there's a growing focus on early detection. Preventing diseases will increasingly become an important aspect of healthcare. We've always argued that biotechs are the engine room of the sector, and hence for a healthcare company to be successful, it must establish an integrated business development department rather than just write one check after another. Some companies are better than others at external sourcing. The less enlightened ones are no different to investors who license or buy something for fear of missing out. However, biotechs are the future, not share buybacks or large-scale mergers. We're indeed seeing big drug developers changing. We're actually seeing deconsolidation in the sector. AstraZeneca has divested a number of assets to refocus the organisation. Novartis has been restructuring itself for some time, divesting vaccine and consumer healthcare divisions to Glaxo. ...while buying their oncology division and now divesting Alcon, the ophthalmology division it fully acquired in 2010. In essence, Novartis is shrinking itself, albeit their capital allocation efforts have been unconvincing so far. At other peers, management changes have occurred and teams are in the process of retooling. But changes are not just happening at the big drug developers. The tool and diagnostic sector is also stepping up to the challenge... Siemens has spun off its healthcare division, and GE has announced plans to do the same in due course. Here, healthcare does not mean drug development. In Siemens' case, it's diagnostics, while for GE, it means diagnostics, manufacturing, and life science tool assets, which will become a standalone company. These changes happen as the dynamics of global healthcare are changing, and the status quo is being challenged, whether it's clinical development approaches, pricing models, manufacturing, or distribution. Products and therapies dismissed as uneconomical not long ago are now commercially available and viable. Biotechs in particular are not afraid to challenge inertia. Often they have optionality in their portfolios and with that becomes a more positive attitude to failure. It's part of the nature of this industry. And the same aforementioned venture capitalist says failure should be celebrated in the same way drug progress is celebrated. Money's been plentiful. And more importantly, tools have become easier to use and more precise, drilling deeper and deeper into the pathology of diseases. While a decade ago it used to be an advantage if a company had an antibody platform, these days any biotech can order a PD-1 antibody simply by paying an antibody supplier to make one. So the skill now lies in figuring out how to progress the antibody through the clinic and what drug to combine it with. Gene and cell therapy along with gene editing, complex multi-specific antibodies and personalized vaccines are the exciting areas. They require significant molecular engineering and manufacturing know-how and are the focuses propelling the next wave of biotechs. Similarly, while immuno-oncology is now a well-known topic with the popular press, there's been far less coverage on the progress made in neurological diseases, which is just as interesting, if not more. Early detection and preventative medicine together with precision medicine where the opportunities lie. This means diagnostic tools will be paramount. These modern tools will reshape healthcare and we're in for exciting times in this sector. And finally looking at the technology sector and the commentary from Cameron Alex around gaming. This space has evolved over the last few years and gamers are now around 30% of the global population who use gaming across computers, consoles, and mobile devices. In more developed countries, where access to electronics and internet connectivity is more prevalent, the portion of the population playing games is even higher. And while historically it was associated with children, particularly boys, the average gamer is now estimated to be 34 years old, with females accounting for nearly half of this population. The industry now generates over $100 billion in annual revenues and is growing at a respectable pace. But there are also interesting transitions afoot. The rise of the mobile phone as a gaming platform is perhaps the most obvious, bigger now than PC or console games from a revenue perspective, but not the only major change the industry is witnessing. Years ago, games were largely sold through retail stores and played by a single player on a computer or console. But today's most popular games are free to download and play against others online. Some of the industry's biggest money spinners, generating tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars a month are free to play companies make money in different ways in some cases in-game advertising for others the bulk of money comes from in-game purchases players can often pay to get past a tricky level speed up the gameplay give them an edge over competitors or simply personalize their in-game character by changing its appearance if you don't play games yourself the idea of electing to play to pay within a free game might seem strange For some, it's driven by a competitive streak or a desire to make progress. For others, it's about expressing themselves more fully in their leisure time or standing out from the virtual crowd or even showing support for their favourite team. For the mass majority, the cost per hour of entertainment is sensationally low, even if they choose to pay. Some games develop devoted fan bases, surviving and thriving for 10 years or more as the developers continue to iterate and the users remain engaged. This depth of engagement creates opportunities for companies such as licensing of IP for movies, TV series or toys. More importantly now is the emergence of competitions around games, a phenomenon known as esports. These esports events can be huge, with audiences packing out stadiums. Tickets to the finals for the largest of these competitions start at $250 and prize pools run in excess of $20 million. Media rights are bringing in hundreds of millions of new revenue to the industry, and sponsorships can be highly sought after. So if you've ever found yourself playing Clash of Clans on the train to work, Candy Crush while waiting for your coffee, or cheering for your home team at a League of Legends tournament, you're part of a growing proportion of society that is embracing games. Hopefully this gives you a sense of the dynamism. As investors change presents opportunity, and the gaming industry has an entire ecosystem of companies through which investors can participate in this change. We have exposed this theme through a number of companies, including a long-held position in Tencent, a company which has operations stretching from game development through to distribution, esports, and everything in between. So with that, we've covered a number of areas today. We've covered the macro overview by Andrew Clifford. We've looked briefly at Europe and Japan. We've gone into more depth On India and China, with Joe Lai's comments, Bianca's look at the healthcare industry, and Cameron Alex's comments on gaming. We hope this has been helpful, and to read more, please do visit our website, platinum.com.au, where you can read the full copy of this quarter's quarterly report.